church, I'm so glad we're gathered together this morning. We're in the middle of a series called Fasting and Feasting, and uh, do you smell that? It smells real good. 6 a.m., you get up at 6 a.m. and you roast a leg of lamb if you want to share it with your congregation. Um, listen, we're in the middle of the series called Fasting and Feasting because what we're talking about is how God meets our longings and our hungers. He knows what it is that we long for. And so often in scripture, what he does is he, he uses food, physical food, in order to talk to us about how he can fill the longings that are in our spirit. He can feel the longings that are in uh, the deepest places of our heart that he can meet us and he can fill us. And so he talks all through scripture using food, whether it's the lack thereof or the abundance and provision of food in order to speak to us through this. And as a result, in the early church, um, the 40-day period, period before Easter was called Lent. It was this period of time where the early church would engage in this practice of fasting, sort of saying like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withhold from this thing so that God can speak to me and meet me in the middle of this time period so I can understand and experience and see the presence of God even more vividly and more clearly. I'm going to dedicate time to sort of spiritual exercises that help me notice and become more aware of the presence of God in our lives. And so we are actually coming to the end of this season of Lent because next week is Easter. Yeah. Um, and so I have heard many, many stories from many people in the congregation who have engaged in this, in this, um, this spiritual exercise of fasting, sometimes from food stuff, sometimes uh, from something like technology, sometimes um, from a different practice in their life where they've said, like, I'm going to withhold from this so I can really begin to pay attention to the presence of God in our lives. Now, what we've said again and again is that the participation in Lent and the participation in fasting does not change the status of our salvation. It doesn't change anything. Instead, it doesn't change how much God is present with us. It changes our awareness of God's presence with us. And so even if you have not engaged with us so far yet in this practice of spiritual fasting, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to invite you, hey, we got one week left. One week left, could you, for this last week, engage in just a practice of spiritual, of some sort of fasting, choose something to fast from, and just say, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to devote my attention for these last seven days as we head to Easter, and I'm going to fast from this one particular thing in order to have God speak to me and become aware of his presence in my life. Now, uh, to get started this morning, uh, if you've been around, you've been journeying with us, I like to do different things in order to make the scripture become a little more real to us, a little more tangible in our own lives to see how it actually applies. And so what I'm going to invite you to do this morning is there's actually a piece of paper on those white um, tables, and I'm going to have everybody grab a piece of paper, and I'm going to have you grab a pencil, and I'm actually going to grab one too. And what I'm going to invite you to do is I'm actually going to invite you to divide this piece of paper into three columns if you want to do it by folding it, hot dog, hamburger, hot dog style, whatever it is. Uh, you can do that or you can just draw a line, that's fine. Uh, but you're going to do three columns on this paper. And in the middle column, I'm going to ask you to do something very specific. I'm going to ask you to write down a place 
a person or a situation right now where there is brokenness or death. It could be like physically, mentally, emotionally. But some sort of place, person, or situation where there is brokenness or death going on right now. So in these four categories, globally, so where have you seen or experienced death or brokenness happening globally? So that would go right here in the middle category. Locally, maybe somewhere in your workplace or your neighborhood. Within your own family. And within your own self. Okay, so in that middle column, four different places, persons, or situations where you have seen or are experiencing death globally, locally, within your family, or within your own self. Okay, so just go ahead and not jot that down. Where are you experiencing that? All right. Now, in that column, that is where you are right now. That's what you're currently experiencing. That's the situation that you are in the middle of. But things haven't always been that way. That's not how things were at the beginning. Instead, uh, at the beginning of creation, when God created this whole world, when, when he had all these people around, when he created uh, everything and the relationships that existed between people and heaven and earth and all of those things, he looked at it and he said it was good. So if God was looking at this column right now, he would not say that's good, but he did create it good. And so what I want you to do is in the left-hand column, I want you to write for each of those four things how it was originally created. So for example, if globally you said, gosh, there's a lot of death in Ukraine right now, we're going to write a really quick thing that says, okay, well, originally it was created for humanity to live in peace and harmony. That's how it was created. All right, so each of those four categories. Globally, how was it created? Locally, how was it created? How is it supposed to be in your neighborhood? How is it supposed to be in your workplace? How is it supposed to be in your family? How did God actually intend it to be? And then what is it supposed to look like in yourself? Wherever you're feeling and experiencing that death and brokenness, how did God actually intend that to be? How is it originally supposed to be? All right, you got it? I know, I'm asking you to do a lot of thinking this morning. All right, awesome. Now, once you have that in your right-hand column, you're going to imagine for a second. Now, you do not know the future, and you do not know what God plans, but we're going to use our um, spiritual imagination for a second, and we're going to think about, in this right-hand column, we're going to write what we imagine new life might look like in each of these areas. So globally, locally, in your family, and in yourself. So, for example, again, if you put Ukraine as the place of death, you might say, hey, the way it was originally created was that we were supposed to have peace among all the nations, right? And then, and then in the end, what new life might look like in your imagination might be like, gosh, uh, the war would stop <laughs> and there would be peace. All right? So, in all four of those categories, what might Right, what you imagine new life would look like globally, locally, in your family, and in yourself. 
The reason I'm having you do this is because we're going to talk about some abstract concepts, and I want them to really hit home for you personally. I don't want them to stay abstract. I want us to really understand what this means for you and I and our world and our families and our contexts. All right, so you guys got it? You good? Okay, what I'm going to have you do, you do not have to share everything in your piece of paper. So uh, if you can share, I always, I, I've been sort of saying like share an appropriate amount. So if you're sitting next to somebody who you just met, you might pick the one that is global because that's not quite as personal. But if you're sitting next to somebody who you know pretty well, maybe you feel more comfortable sharing the personal one. And um, so you choose your own adventure in this thing. But I'm going to invite you to share just one just one of the places where you are experiencing sort of death or brokenness globally, locally, um, within your family or within yourself. And I want you to share kind of across the grid. This is the way it was created. This is how I'm experiencing it. And this is how I imagine that one day it will become, okay? So turn to somebody next to you, share that, make sure you know their name. That's very important. Um, and go ahead and share that now and I'll bring you back in just a second. If you're watching online, you can also do this in the comment section. All right, go. How are we doing, everyone? Need a little more time? Are we good? We good? All right, great. All right, now what I want you to do is I want you to take your piece of paper, and I want you to roll it up. Roll it up like this. And then on each of your tables, there is a uh, ha happy face or a sad face sticker. <laughs> and you're going to take it, and you're just going to seal it shut with that little sticker like that. It doesn't matter whether you choose happy face or sad face. What is on the sticker is not important. It's just the stickers I could find in our children's ministry bin. So whatever it is, it doesn't matter. This is not a test. This is not determined like anything about your life. Just choose a sticker and seal it up. Okay, you can go ahead and you can set these down next to you. We'll uh, go ahead and look at these again in a second. Uh, here's the thing. When I asked you to write down a place of death or brokenness that you have seen or experienced, either globally, locally, within your family, or within your own life, I am making a conjecture. I'm guessing that that actually wasn't that hard. I'm guessing that it was actually pretty easy to be like, oh, yeah, <laughs> here we go, right? Uh, you only want me to choose one, right? It's typically pretty easy for us to be able to recognize and see those spaces in our lives and in our world that are broken. But what is harder is to accept and acknowledge that there isn't a whole lot that we can do to change it. Like sometimes there are some things we can sort of rearrange, but when we get to those bigger areas of brokenness, when we're talking about a war in Ukraine, yes, we can contribute to help different things, but like, can I stop the war? No, I can't. When we talk about the death of a loved one, like we may be able to care for them in specific ways, but can I stop that completely from happening? No, I can't. There's sort of these ways that we sort of as human beings are limited in our power to stop and opt out of death. But through scripture, what we are aware of is that there's an animal that shows up again and again and again that seems to be able to change the projection of death. And it's a lamb. It's a lamb, which is really ironic because a lamb is probably one of the most vulnerable creatures. In fact, uh, some people say that a lamb is the most vulnerable creature next to a baby chick. 
And the reason a baby chick is even less or is even more vulnerable is because a parent chick, a, baby, a mama hen, won't even defend a baby chick. Like if a cat goes after a baby chick, the hen's like, I'm out of here, right? Uh, the mama sheep will at least try to do something, but a baby lamb is incredibly vulnerable. And yet throughout scripture, this is the animal that it shows up to say like, hey, the projection of death can change. And so we're really, really quickly going to leap through scripture really fast to see how this animal shows up in a couple different places. First, it's in the book of Genesis, right? Abraham is commanded by God to sacrifice his promised son, Isaac, to bring him up to the top of a mountain, hoist him on an altar, and kill him. Which for us in our modern ears doesn't make any sense. But at the last minute, an angel stops Abraham and says, no, 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 don't do it. Look, there's a ram. And this is the sacrifice that takes the place of the son. And if you fast forward a little bit more, you again get to the book of Exodus. At the Passover meal, it's the night before the Israelites are to be delivered from slavery. And their instruction is to... Uh, it, they're instructed that to save their firstborn from the destroyer who is intent on bringing death, they need to slaughter a lamb. And they need to place the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house as a sign to the destroyer to pass over that house, to spare the firstborn son, to skip them and allow the son to leave, live. And here's the deal. That night... They were also to eat the lamb. And here's the thing that I'm sure was going through every firstborn's thought and mind in that night. It was, this lamb is dead, so I'm not. This leg is here, so mine is not. Right? Like, you get that, that as they're eating this, there's this very clear connection that the lamb has been slain, so that the son does not have to die. And so they continue, uh, and so the, this lamb changes the future trajectory of death in the whole world. And over and over throughout scripture, the prophets speak of a day where there would one day be no more pain, where there would one day be no more death. There would be no more suffering, no more brokenness, and all of life on earth would be changed and transformed because of a lamb. And so year after year after year, what would happen in the ancient world is people would bring a lamb, an unblemished, an unbroken, a perfect lamb as a sacrifice to the temple. And it was this reminder that God saved them in the past, that God delivered them from death in the past, and that he would deliver them from death in the future, that God was going to make this great promise. Now, here's the deal. Every um, year around this time, the entire city would smell like this. Like you would have so much roasted lamb all over the city. It would make your mouth water. And scripture tells us that this smell is actually fragrant to God. It's fragrant to me too, right? And then one day, 2,000 years ago, there was a man named John the Baptist who shows up, and he points to this guy walking nearby him. His name was Jesus. He points to this man and he says, look, 
It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, for us, the word, the word sin can sort of be a stumbling block because we're like, I, I, we don't use that word very commonly in our everyday life. But what John actually means is when he points to Jesus, he's saying, look, it's the unblemished and spotless lamb that belongs to God that has the most potential for future worth and value. That was not going to die in and of itself, but was given by God as a sacrifice. And this lamb is going to change the trajectory of all of our stories in the past, in the future, and in the present. Because he's the one that will take away sin. He's the one who will take away death. He's the one that will take away brokenness in the world. And what John is saying is like, hey, when we sit down together for a feast and we see that this lamb has been slain, we will know that that lamb died so that we didn't have to. So that we didn't have to. Now, in that moment when John makes that uh, projection or that proclamation, like nobody can imagine that that, what that really means. Nobody can imagine that that is really Jesus or what that means and how that would apply. No one can imagine that God would give his own perfect son. Uh, that God himself would actually never die, but in that moment he was wrapping himself in flesh and he was giving himself as a sacrifice so that the children of God could live. So that he could die on a cross and we could live. Now, for some of us, these are the different ways that we've heard talk about the lamb in scripture. Probably these stories aren't um, very new to you. If you grew up in church, you've heard these things before. Um, but there's a story that we commonly don't talk about in the Bible when it comes to Easter and talking about the lamb, and that's really the one that I want to talk about. It's actually found in the book of Revelation. And a lot of us don't spend a lot of time in the book of Revelation because it's weird and it has a lot of like uh, baggage with it that is some sort of future telling predictor of like what the end of the world is going to look like and China is the bear and Russia is the bull and we have to watch for the signs of the time and all of those things. No. Nope. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe that that's really what uh, the biblical narrative is telling us when we read the book of Revelation. Instead, what is happening in the book of Revelation is John, the author, is having a vision that God has given him that is not something that's going to happen in the way future. Instead, what God gives John is like, hey, I want to show you what's happening right now. I want to show you what happened in the past, what's happening right now, and what will happen in the future, and I'm going to give you symbols to understand what this looks like. And so we're going to talk about the symbol of the lamb that John sees in the book of Revelation, and I'm hopeful that it will become a powerful thing for you to have hope on in this coming Easter. In the book of Revelation, John uh, has this vision where he's brought into the throne room of God, and it's not John the Baptist, it's John the follower of Jesus. He has this vision where he's brought into the throne room of God. And John has this vision that's so crazy that then he's told to, like, write down what he sees. But have you ever had one of those things where you had a dream, and it was crazy, and you were flying, and then time didn't really work, and you enter into a space that you know, but there's also a space that is weird, and you're trying to retell this dream after you've had it, and nothing makes sense? And you're like, I know that it was this person, but it really looked like this person. And they had a horn coming out of their eye. And all of a sudden, right, like our dreams get crazy. 
because they're not limited by the realities of physics or time or space or our dimension. And so we try to verbally say what happened in our dream, and, uh, and it doesn't really make sense. And that's exactly the same thing that happens to John. As John is describing this vision that he had, he doesn't have words that describe this other dimension that he sees this picture that he experiences. And so when we read Revelation and we read John's vision, we're like, wow, that's, that's, that's weird. And it is, and it is. But he's trying to use human words to describe something that is utterly unhuman, that is from a different place. And so John describes this throne room that he sees, God's throne room, and he uses words like he says that in this throne room of God, that there is a throne and there's somebody who sits on the throne and they look like jasper and ruby. And that there's like this rainbow that goes all around the throne. And that there's 24 other thrones with elders sitting on the thrones and, and the elders have a crown. And then there's like lightning and there's flashes of thunder. And then there's seven lampstands and then there's seven spirits. And then there's like the sea of glass that goes out, right? This is how we describe our own dreams. It's very like, wait, what is happening? And then John introduces these different creatures that are covered with eyes, all on their fronts and all on their back. And the theological term we use to describe these creatures is weird. It's a theological. You can look it up in a commentary, right? There's, there's, there's creatures that look like a lion and kind of like an ox and kind of like has a face of a man. And then there's like an eagle and they're singing this song. They're singing this song, and when they sing it, all of the elders that are sitting on the thrones, they take their crowns and they lay them down, and then they worship the one who is enthroned on the main throne that looks like rubies and jasper. So there's all these crazy things going on. And then what John notices, and this is the important part, John notices that seated on the throne the one seated on the throne has a scroll. And the scroll is rolled up and it's sealed. And then an elder shouts out, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who's worthy to open the scroll? And they look on heaven and they look on earth and they look under the earth and they can't find anybody that can open this scroll. Now, for those of us who aren't fluent in New Te Old Testament, we're like, I don't, I still am lost. Uh, for the people of the day who, like, knew the Old Testament back and front and back and front, like, um, like, like you know, those people who love uh, Harry Potter or Star Wars or any of those sorts of, like, cult movies that you just, like, you know them back and forth, right? And some, like, a, a Marvel, Marvel's another one, right? Um, Okay, this is a total side note. I had never seen the Marvel movies start to back, so when my husband would drag me to a new Marvel movie, he'd be like, oh yeah, that's Thanos. And I'm like, I don't know who the heck Thanos is. Like, I don't know what we're talking about, right? And so I'm like, oh yeah, Thanos, that's great, right? And then when the pandemic hit, our family took it upon ourselves to watch all the Marvel movies from start to finish, right? And then Thanos appears, and I'm like, that's Thanos! Oh my gosh, right? When you know the whole epic narrative and something appears, you say, oh, I know what that is. I've seen that before. I've seen that before. That's what happens with this. So when those who know the Old Testament see, there is a scroll with a seal, 
Everyone who knows the grand narrative says, it's the scroll, it's the scroll, right? They get excited because they know what this means. This scroll is referring to Daniel 12. It's referring to Isaiah 8. It's referring to, uh, no, Ezekiel 8. It's referring to, uh, or Ezekiel 2 and 3. It's referring to Isaiah 8. They're like, it's the scroll. Do you remember the scroll? And everyone else is like, no, I missed that part. Like, we got to go back and watch all the pre prequels, right? It's the scroll. It's the scroll. So let me tell you what the scroll is all about. In Daniel 12, uh, Daniel is a book of the Bible that was written when the Israelite people were in exile, right? So what you wrote in your middle column about all the death and brokenness and destruction in the world, they were living it. Everything they expected to happen didn't. They were exiled from their land. They weren't with their people. Everything had gone wrong, and all they saw around them was brokenness and destruction and death, and there was, felt like there was no hope for a future. And then God instructs Daniel in chapter 12 to write down the third column, what you wrote on the right of like what could new life be imagined, what could that look like? God instructs Daniel to write that down. And he says this in verse 12. He said, listen, there's going to be a time of trouble. That's your middle column. That's where we are right now. There's going to be a time of trouble, the worst trouble the world has ever seen. But your people will be saved from the trouble. Every last one found written in the book. Many who have been uh, long dead and buried will wake up to eternal life. Others to eternal shame. Men and women who have lived wisely and well will shine brightly like cloudless, star-strewn night skies. And those who put others on the right path to life will glow like the stars forever. That's what God gives this picture to Daniel of like what it's going to look like. And so God gives Daniel this picture of, of what the end is going to look like, what the next thing is going to look like. And then God tells Daniel this. He says, listen, but you, Daniel, roll up, like write those words down, but then roll them up and seal them in a scroll till the end of time. That's what the scroll was about. It was God saying, listen, this thing is going to happen Death is not the end, that people will live again, that brokenness will be restored, that heaven will come to earth, that pain will be over. And it will come. Write it down. And then seal it up in a scroll. And hold on to it. And don't forget that it's going to happen. So now we jump back to Revelation. And God is holding this scroll. And John sees it. And they're like, who can open it? Who can make it happen? Who can bring it about? Who can bring heaven to earth? Who can undo death? Who can undo brokenness? Who can bring life? And they look all over and they're like, we don't know, we don't know. Who can do it? Who can open the scroll? Who can open the scroll? And then what we're told is that as they were looking around, they couldn't find anything. They couldn't find anybody that could do it until John hears one of the elders say this. Oh, and John starts to weep because he's so sad about it. And, 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 and then John hears one of the elders say this. Don't weep. Do not weep. Don't be sad. Don't be sad. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And so John's like, wait, wait. 
the lion is coming. The lion's the one who can bring this all about. The lion can make this happen. And so John looks up, and there's this thing in Revelation that always happens that John hears one thing, but he sees something different. So he hears this tale of this ferocious lion that has triumphed. And then he, he hears this message about a conquering lion that will fight and defend, and he thinks that it's going to aggressively make things happen in order to triumph. And what we think he's going to see is a ferocious, fierce, terrible lion that can destroy and demolish its enemy, and in that, bring life. But what John sees is something so different. He hears about a lion, but then it says that John looked up and he saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, right? This is a weird thing. We're told that there's this lion that has triumphed, but then what John sees is a lamb, a woolly lamb, an animal with flat teeth that just chews on grass. It's just about the most unferocious looking thing that there could ever be, and not only that, this particular lamb looks like it has been slain. It looks like it has, it's covered in its own blood from its throat being slit and killed. What? And John has heard about this aggressive lion king, but what he sees is a sacrificed, bloody, slain lamb. And then the bloody lamb goes over, and the lamb takes the scroll that no one else can open, and all of the creatures and the elders fall on their face and start saying, you are worthy to open the scroll because you were slain. You can bring all the people from every tribe, every tongue, every language together for your kingdom here on earth. You can triumph death. You can bring life. You are the one who can restore how things once were to now be how they are. That whole column that you wrote of what you have experienced in terms of death and brokenness. In Revelation, it's saying that because the lamb was slain, all that stuff can be undone. That it's the lamb that died, that sacrificed its life, that now can bring life. Now, here's the thing. We, as humans, we are hungry for life. Whenever it is that we experience death, whenever we, it is that we experience things not as they are to be, there's a part of us that is uneasy. It's part of the reason why we grieve and we rage against death, because we know this cannot be how it is supposed to be. This cannot be how it is supposed to be. We are hungry for life, but the only one who is able to open the scroll the only one who's able to bring life, we're told, is a lamb who is covered in its own blood because it's, been, it's laid down its own life. And what we know from the rest of Scripture is that that lamb is Jesus. That Jesus is the flesh-wrapped God. That the one who is um, this aggressive and ferocious lion king makes himself like a lamb and becomes human. He makes himself to experience all the vulnerabilities of humanity, even death, and Jesus allows himself to be crucified and to die 
so that all of us can experience life, so that death no longer has the final word, but instead, life comes, and heaven comes to earth. And here's why this ultimately matters. In our current cultural context, in our history as even a Christian church and how the church has moved throughout histories, we oftentimes think that the way that we should bring life, the way that we should bring uh, rightness is through human power, is through governmental conquest, is through sort of trying to force our own agenda. And we sort of say, oh, well, there's something broken, and so I'm going to be stronger than that thing, and I'm going to make that thing bend to my will. But instead, what we see in Scripture is that what Christ does to bring life is he lays down his own life. We hear that God wins, and we oftentimes conclude that that must mean that God started to shed some enemy blood. But what we see in Scripture is that what God actually did is he shed his own blood in self-sacrificial love. And Jesus is telling us that the way that God wins is not through might, and it's not through garnering human power or mowing down the enemy, but it's through self-sacrificial love. And Jesus said that on this earth, everything can look more like heaven because of what Jesus has done. And so what I want to challenge you with this morning is to think a little bit about the ways that Christ desires to bring life in those dead spaces that you're experiencing. That it's because Christ sacrificed himself that he desires to bring life to you. But in addition to that, he's calling us to be the lambs that lay down our own life in order to bring life to others. In order to bring life to those spaces that are experiencing death and brokenness. Now the scroll reveals to us that we are being called not to triumph by power, but to triumph through love. And so my question for you this morning is, in your own life, is there a place where you're sort of coming out like a lion? You're sort of saying, you know what? This area of death, I'm going to strong arm it. I'm going to try to bend it to my will. And what God maybe is calling you to is to lay down your life for that thing, to come in and embody the slain lamb. Maybe for you it's in an area of your relationship, a marriage or parenting relationship, where you um, have the line that you know you can say that will just destroy them, that will mow them over, but instead what does it look like for you to take the path of self-sacrifice? Maybe for you you have this feeling where you're like, no, I know that I'm right, I know that I, I can conquer this by coming out swinging. I know that I can do this well. But what Jesus is saying is, like, listen, I don't want you to come out swinging. What I want you to do is I want you to reprioritize your life to serve, to engage, and to love those who are a part of that issue. Maybe for you, um, God is calling you to just love to be open to him and allow him to tell you how it is that he loves you. Now, I know that it's hard to trust that an uh, a, a a animal that is as dumb as a sheep 
is able to represent the fullness of God's love for you. But the reality is, is that this is the animal that God chooses. This is the animal that he says, listen, this is what I was like when I was led to the cross. And I laid down my life for you in this act of sacrificial love for each other to restore a relationship between you and the Father so that all things would be made new. Now, today we're going to respond to this, uh, this truth that Christ brings us in a really particular way. We're going to eat some lamb which I know is kind of a strange thing to do. Normally, we would do something where we would like eat communion together. We would partake in the cup and the juice. But today, we're actually going to um, eat this lamb. And uh, I'm going to invite you that during this next song, I'm going to invite you to come forward and just take a piece of the lamb. I've cut off some here. and We have some napkins. Um, and I'm going to invite you to come forward and, and take the lamb and eat the lamb um, as sort of a way to be reminded that of Christ's sacrifice for you, that the life that is waiting inside of the scroll, that God has done everything in order to break that scroll open so that you can experience life. And it's all through his sacrifice. So will you um, pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful for who you are. We are so thankful for your love for us. We're thankful for um, the ways that you have uh, brought deliverance to us, that the ways that we are experiencing death is not the end. But you desire for us to experience life. And so, Father God, would you remind us that life is not experienced through fighting, that life is not experienced through striving, but that life is experienced through the acceptance of your sacrifice. And so, Father God, would you just speak to us now? Would you speak to those places where we feel dead inside, where we feel hopeless? And would you remind us that you are our living hope, that you are the slain lamb who conquers death and brings life? Father God, we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.